strikes continue around the world, including right here in Chicago. Scam emails to Microsoft Outlook accounts cost one student $2,000. And a guide to impeachment. Go Earth, what Columbia looks like! This is what Columbia looks like! Published since 1973. I'll give my life for this cause, and I will die for this cause. This is Chronicle Headlines. of protesters gathered near Daly Plaza for another climate strike on Monday, October 7th. Extinction Rebellion, an international climate advocacy group, is dedicated to nonviolent demonstrations to promote action against the climate crisis. Strikes took place all over the world on Monday, but here in Chicago, several hundred climate protesters broke police lines, which resulted in at least one arrest. And here to talk with us now is photojournalist Camila Forte, who attended the protest again. Hey, Camila, can you give us a little bit of an update? What's going on? Hi, thank you for having me again. Yeah. Last night was the second um, major protest that we've seen um, in this climate crisis that's ongoing. And it was organized by a different group. It was organized by Extinction Rebellion um, rather than the Youth Climate Strike, although they were also in attendance, but they weren't the front people for this one. Um, and it wasn't originally supposed to be a march. It was um, promoted as just a culture fair. Um, and they were supposed to have prayer, yoga, and a bunch of other restorative activities, as well as a press conference, which is why we attended. And they were at Daily Plaza. Um, and the plan was that they would join with these bikers called Critical Mass, and they would occupy the perimeter of Daily Plaza with their bikes. It's an ongoing annual event. They just merged them to show support for the climate strike. And they did that, but then they proceeded to continue to occupy the street. And at around 6.05, I think, uh, they were being corralled by police and they were chanting, let us pass. And they broke through police lines and they proceeded to occupy the street and march forward which was not part of the plan. So what do you mean by part of the plan? What was this plan? I mean, obviously when you um, organize something like this, you have to talk to city officials and things like that. And as far as I understand it, their permit only allowed them to be at Daly Plaza. Uh, the youth climate strike uh, marchers did march from Trump Tower to Daly Plaza to meet them. But after that, it was just supposed to dissipate at six. But following that, they continued forward to occupy the streets and block traffic, which was not in record. And the police had to keep up with them and try to block and control the protest um, in ongoing traffic. So how would you differentiate the overall mood of this protest from the previous one? I mean, it was definitely far more confrontational and Extinction Rebellion is a nonviolent organization. They uh, very much emphasize that, but their idea is to disrupt the status quo. Um, I talked to one of their organizers uh, before this all went down, and he kind of hinted this at me, although at the time I didn't fully understand what he meant. 
Um, it was nonviolent. There, there was nothing that would characterize it as violent, but they did um, step outside of what they were permitted to do in order to block traffic. So the strike had a few turns of events, but can you dive in a little bit more on them? What else happened? Yeah, I mean, because they blocked the street and that wasn't accounted for, um, they were staging die-ins in, mid- in the middle of intersections, and that obviously caused a little bit of disruption of the flow of traffic, especially downtown um, at night, which is when people are coming back from work. Um, you had individuals um, sticking phones out of their car windows to document what was going on. Um, people who were passing by just stopping to stare because they had no idea what was going on with that. And uh, marchers were like very um, assertive in their need to keep it going forward. You had individuals running ahead of police lines to make sure that they didn't get too blocked in and they could continue to walk north. So that was definitely a change of tone for the protest overall. Now, how did it feel to report on a story like this? You know, obviously you've reported on it before, but how like how would you describe the overall mood of these protesters? And then how how was it to report on a story like this? I mean, it really caught me off guard. I went alone originally to cover this because we really thought it was just going to go from four to six, be like a two hour thing, really simple, like press conference activities. And then I saw that they were kind of moving towards the street and I got up on a barrier at one point to like see what was going on a little bit better and get a few overhead shots and I just kind of saw people start to go around uh, the police barricade which they were holding with bikes and um, at that moment I realized that that wasn't supposed to be happening because police officers started talking to each other and then people moved forward and they started to like chase them on bikes. So at that point, I called Mike, our photo editor, and I was like, hey, get people down here because I can't cover this by myself. They've broken police lines. And then that became the news rather than the protest itself. Wow, that's that's incredible. I mean, this is like a historic moment in history. So what's it like um, covering such a historic moment in our time? I mean, people all over the world are striking like this. What is this making an impact in your opinion? I mean, I think it's really character like it's it says a lot about what's happening and the fact that this is escalating and people are really angry and like tired um the organizer the chicago organizer for extinction rebellion um told me that their slogan is when hope dies like action follows and i think you can really see that people are starting to think like there's no other option like we have to be ahead of this and Obviously, depending on who you are, that action takes different forms. Um, But it was something, again, I was not expecting, and it really caught me off guard. I I am still kind of speechless. Yeah, why why are you still speechless, would you say? I guess I really wasn't expecting it. Again, I... I don't even know how to describe like what it felt like to realize that things were escalating and, and having to call more people to help me out was crazy. I mean, there were arrests, which going from this is going to be like a peaceful culture fair to there are police officers arresting marchers um, is a big shift. Um, the police became a lot more aggressive, obviously, because they were trying to uh, control what was going on. But 
you had marchers screaming like we are human at them and trying to like make eye contact so the whole dynamic in in that term there's shifts and you can like feel tension yeah so can you talk a little bit about these arrests what were you seeing yeah i mean i actually had to run back to the newsroom at around like 7:20 um and that was 20 minutes before the march officially dissipated and the arrest was made at around 7:45 p.m. so i wasn't there when the arrest was made but one of our other photojournalists who came to back me up Justin Anderson was there and he got a photo of the arrest right so do we know specifically why the person was arrested i mean he got photos of it like while it was happening so you can kind of see the protester getting in police's face um and and yet being a little more aggressive and yelling and i think it was honestly just an effort to kind of uh, diffuse the situation entirely they obviously like no one wants a protest like that to turn violent no one wants it to escalate into a riot so police are going to let it happen like let this disruption continue for so long until they have to make like a decision and take action to like make sure it stops so i think that was kind of like the breaking point it had almost gone on for 2 hours longer than it was supposed to um it had obviously expanded far beyond the perimeter that it was supposed to and i think it was just kind of like action they took to make sure like it stopped cuz right after that it ended yeah about how many people would you say were in attendance i would say it was a couple hundred wow okay so can you tell us a little bit about the shots that you got i know you said justin was the one who got the photo of the the protester being arrested but tell us a little bit more about the shots that you yeah. got i mean i i was there from four when it started so I, you can really see in the progression of my photos like how angry people started getting and i i really focused in obviously on like the mass of people there but i also wanted to make sure i got like close up shots of like people's faces because expressions are so important um in cases like these uh one of my favorite ones is uh one at the dye-in where you can see like students laying on the floor on the ground and um there's this girl with climate emergency written on her arm and she has her arm raised in a fist and the people around her just like look really really sad which is something that you don't see much at protests like you don't really see grief and that's like a reoccurring theme that i've noticed uh going to these climate events seeing other climate events the chronicle has covered like people are upset and it's not just anger it's genuine like fear and distress right will there be another protest soon I think so. I think um Ignacio Calderon who has been um covering these the climate crisis that's his like main interest is planning on covering another one uh in October, I think. So, we're definitely going to make sure that we have people at those especially because we've noticed that they're escalating. For additional reporting on this story, you can head over to columbiachronicle.com. That's all for this story, but do stay tuned for more. Chances are you've probably received one in the past. Yahoo, Gmail, pretty much every email service will have you receiving a scam at least once in your life. Microsoft Outlook, which holds our new Columbia College email addresses, is no different. 
You may have received a suspicious email over the past few weeks offering certain amounts of money to do simple tasks such as walking a dog. Although many are aware of suspicious emails when they see one, it cost at least one student $2,000. Here to give us the scoop and more information on the story is Mari Devereaux, staff reporter. So on Columbia's new Outlook accounts, uh, scammers have been taking advantage of the fact that it is a little bit easier to hack or get into Microsoft's systems and send an email from in, from like internally um, to students saying, hey, we want you to do certain tasks for us, walk our dogs, um, and they kind of act as a member of the student body or a faculty member and kind of... <sighs> And target students specifically because they know that students are making looking to make money and they basically say, hey, we got this job for you. We have these special tasks that we want you to do. We'll pay you. We'll pay you well. And students, you know, who are desperate to make money or take on an extra job, maybe one that sounds easier like dog walking um, in this case, um, might say, oh, this looks like a great opportunity. I'm and why I should trust it because it comes from a Columbia email account, which I think is a Columbia student, even though it's really a hacker using a Columbia student or email domain um, to kind of instill trust in whoever they're trying to target or fish. Um, so yeah, it's basically just students falling for this scam because they think it looks legitimate, but it's really scammers trying to get personal information and trying to get students to deposit checks and um, do other kind of crazy things for them to, um, all, all in the name of just getting more money from the students, but yeah. So who did you talk to for this story? Because I'm very interested in learning more since I received one of these emails. I talked to Katie Koch, who is the uh, information technology officer at Columbia, and she told me a little bit about what the school is doing um, to prevent uh, students from falling for these phishing scams. And basically, she said there are a few things to look out for um, when you're encountering these different emails. Um, if they seem urgent if like the if this person in the message is like i want you to do all these different things and they seem kind of like like they're in a hurry or like they really want you to carry out these tasks or if there's poor grammar um sometimes um misspellings um things that maybe someone who's for maybe for people who like english isn't their first language that might be little slips that they might have um because sometimes they come from different countries um and also there's the fact that some of these emails um also they'll have a weird domain they'll look like clum.edu but they'll maybe have like an extra like number or an extra word in there that wouldn't normally be in the emails um and it just has a bunch of tips like that um that you can ask for if you go to it um also if you see any of these email phishing scams you should immediately email them to the it uh, phishing account at columbia so that they can take care of it and make sure that it's blocked um, and i also did talk to an expert from um, northwestern who said that um, another way of combating these emails is to block them entirely uh, from the system and columbia could buy um, different email um, filtering services that would help them kind of detect these links that are maybe will take you to a malware site or infect your computer with viruses. So they have ways of blocking it um, through 
blacklisting means and whitelisting means on Microsoft and um, official um, fish or scamming, um, scam detecting uh, services. So yeah. So did Columbia comment on this at all? Um, their <laughs> their official comment, w at least from Katie Koch, was that you know they're aware of the problem basically um they don't necessarily think that it's a microsoft problem um even though some evidence has suggested otherwise um just because i mean you can hack both gmail accounts and microsoft accounts but on microsoft accounts um there is something called uh a address book like a global address book that um, everyone has access to, whereas in Gmail, um, you don't have access to everyone's addresses, their email addresses within the system. And so if a hacker gets into Microsoft, they can actually have access to that entire address book, whereas they couldn't do that in Google. So it just makes it a little, it's just one way that's a little bit simpler for um, scammers to get into the system. But yeah, so basically the school said, you know, we have some things that we're doing, it's mainly about like, um, informing the user rather than trying to block the fishers. So that's what that's kind of their angle right now is they're trying to inform everyone first and foremost. Um, don't click on these emails. Don't look at them. Don't like contact the person back. Um, and just giving them little red flags or warning signs. How are they informing them specifically? Um, so they had one can they had the campaign that most people know about, which is on the tops of emails, they'll have a little banner that says this email originated from outside of Columbia or from outside of this system or domain, which doesn't really help when, um, the hacker uses a Columbia.edu um, email address. Cause then the student will obviously have no reason to think that it's not from, um, someone, but I think a good rule of thumb is don't ever click on a link even if it's from a professor or someone you know if you're not expecting it that's what um that's what katie coke said um also they're sending out i think these little or they're posting these little flyers around campus just with these different tips um i think in a few months they're also planning to have this uh online um training service that they use um for i think it's called from through no before um so it's this service that is an interactive um, training program that helps students like online or helps people online um, kind of see what an, a simulate kind of experience a simulation of what phishing would look like and how to avoid that um, and how to detect when emails are scams or not. So, so uh, let's let's talk about this. A student <laughs> loses how much money now? two thousand dollars wow yeah now i received one of these emails actually i've received multiples of these emails but me personally because i've received emails like this in the past in my personal email i knew they were fake like right off the mm -hmm. bat i knew they were fake but you know for everybody that's not the case and that's understandable but two thousand dollars how does this work what happened so basically, um, this student who in the story we keep um, their identity secret called John Doe. So basically he um, went, so he responded to the email. He said, you know, I'll do this service. We all walk your guys' dogs because um, they were moving from California, supposedly, and they wanted someone to walk their dogs while um, they were still getting there because they were going to ship their dogs beforehand. Whatever. Anyways, long story short, um, they send him the check that is supposed to pay for not only like his first week on the job, but also some 
um, find kitchen appliances uh, <laughs> for their new home. So the check is in total is $2,450. They say keep 350 for yourself, spend 100 on dog supplies, and we're going to need the 2000 um, as a deposit from for some kitchen supplies that we're going to be buying. And so they... So he deposits the money in his account, in his bank account, and then he is instructed to take the $2,000 out in uh, either cash or Bitcoin. Interesting. And, yeah, interesting. <laughs> um, and so he takes it out in cash, smartly, because he was like, I have no idea what the hell Bitcoin is. So anyway, so he took, he takes it out in, um, he takes it out in cash and and so he's then instructed to um, use the $2,000 to pay for a money order, which is basically like a check that's already been paid for. So how this works is you take the, you take the money, you take it to either maybe a bank or a small business or a grocery store or something like that, and then you give them the money. So he gave them the $2,000 in cash and asked for a money order, which he then sent to the address in an overnight, the, the address that the scammer had given him in an overnight um, delivery. And so there was no way that he could get that money back because he had already paid for it in cash. So they got, whenever they got the money order, they could just take that, use it, and then take out the $2,000 in cash wherever they wanted. Um, because it had already been paid for it wasn't it's not like a check and so then they they got that money and wow. so but the thing was the two thousand the 2450 that they gave him in the check did not exist so they gave him a counterfeit check and he, he thought since the check cleared in his bank that it actually existed because he was like oh the bank's giving me the money i can take out the two thousand dollars so you know that must mean that it cleared like everything's good but it with counterfeit checks sometimes um the thing is the bank is required to give you the money sooner than it actually clears the bank is required by federal law to give you the check within like one to five days something like that or at least part of the amount um but it could take up to it could take weeks for the check to actually bounce which means that the um the bank that um is supposed to be giving the funds is like hey we don't have that because this check is fake so then the check bounces and then the money um was taken out of his account so the 2000 that he spent um didn't exist so it just instead of coming from the check that was given to him it just came straight out of his account so that's very interesting now has this happened to any other students that that the chronicle was able to find out about not that we are, are aware of we know that students have been interested in it and have kind of been like oh this is a great idea you know i should i should do this but we haven't been able to follow up with anyone or see if they actually fell you know for the for the scams or if they you know if they fell victim to him um so yeah we, hopefully no one else has experienced this so far um but this is why we wrote the article to make sure that you know everyone knows about this and is informed to stay away from it right well that's all for this story but to hear a little bit more about it you can head over to columbiachronicle.com to read it or you can pick up our print edition available on campus
A second whistleblower has come forward with information on President Trump's phone call with Ukraine. The second whistleblower has fanned the flames of the impeachment inquiry into President Trump. But impeachment is complicated. To uncomplicate the complicated, I have co-editor-in-chief Alexandra Yetter in studio. So, Alexandra, you tried to tell us how impeachment works. Is that right? I did. How did that go? It was more difficult than I thought it would be. It's a lot of very tiny details that a lot of people have varying degrees of knowledge on, so it required a lot of research. There have been other impeached presidents. Isn't there kind of a set guideline that has to be met here? Isn't it the same all around? There's a process for sure. There have been three presidents who have been impeached. It was um, Andrew Johnson, Richard Nixon, and then the most recent was Bill Clinton. But the main misunderstanding is that people assume impeachment is removal from the White House. And they're not exactly one and the same. Impeachment is more of a political act saying that the U.S. House believes that a president has abused his presidential power. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they will be removed from the White House. Okay, so let's not do any of the specific details about President Trump right now. So let's just say um, there's a claim against the president. Impeachment inquiry is set. What is the first thing that happens? What's the second? How does it go all the way through? So the very first thing that happens is someone in the House announces that there's going to be an impeachment inquiry. And basically this means that committees in the U.S. House are going to start investigating and collecting evidence that goes to the basic premise that a president has abused his presidential power given to him by the U.S. Constitution. And this can be anything. It can be um, corruption. It could be um, obstruction of justice. It could be anything like that. And then when those committees all collect that evidence, they submit it to the Judiciary Committee within the House. The Judiciary Committee looks at the evidence and then drafts articles of impeachment, which are kind of like um, charges. And then the Judiciary Committee sends those charges to the full House, where the House votes on whether to impeach the president. Okay, then what happens after the House? So if the House votes by two-thirds majority to impeach, then it moves to the U.S. Senate. And the Senate can do a few different things. They can either vote as soon as the articles of impeachment get to them to dismiss them, or they can hold a trial. And A trial, trial of the president? Yeah, a trial of the president before the chief justice of the United States and, well, in this case, Trump's lawyers. So... What's what's the difference or the benefit of a trial then? Because if they vote to, can, can they vote to accept the articles of impeachment, or is it only dismissal or trial? They can. They can um, vote to accept outright, but in this case and in other impeachment cases, that's highly unlikely because one party usually controls one chamber of Congress, and then the other controls the other. So it's a very political action. But if voting to accept, so. Let's take away all partisanship. Is there a certain number of votes, so say it goes to the House to vote to accept the articles of impeachment, how much uh, majority would they need there? It would be a two-thirds majority in the Senate and then a simple majority in the House. Okay, so then people just generally go for this this trial. Now, 
is it a, a legal trial we think of, like with lawyers arguing both sides, or is, is there nuance to this? No, it, it's essentially um, lawyers defending the president and then lawyers defending um, the uh, U.S. Congress's decision or the House's decision. Um, but there has been some skepticism on whether a president can be indicted. So it's not necessarily indicting him. It's more, should he be removed from office? So you could be voted to be removed from office, but mm-hmm. you may not face any criminal charges or any civil charges? Sitting presidents typically don't get indicted. So the president would have to be removed from office and then indicted, which has never um, been done before. Okay. So then between the House and the Senate, is that all the steps? So let's say they hold the trial, trial ends. Who makes the decision? Can the decision be overruled by anyone? The Senate would make the final decision. Um, It's never come to that point, um, but the Senate would be the final word. When you say it's never come to that point, what do you mean by that specifically? So Richard Nixon resigned from office. Um, Is it more because at that point presidents are resigning from office and the full system never gets carried yeah, out? Yeah, either or? they resign or it doesn't get past impeachment or the vote doesn't work out. So let's try and take what we kind of know about that complicated process to what's currently going on. They're at the Mm -hmm. very beginning, very first steps. You can argue that they've really taken a baby step towards impeachment. Is that correct? It's a baby step, but it's one that people have been hammering for since 2016 when Trump was elected and he was accused of... um, Russian interference into the 2016 election. So it's one that they've been waiting for for a while. So essentially right now we're in the House committees searching things and looking for information and gathering whatever they need to gather. I think there's been a couple depositions of key witnesses mm-hmm. and maybe the whistleblowers will speak. Uh, there's all that nuance to that. But let's say these House committees make their judgment, make their ruling. That's when it goes to a vote in the House before it heads over to the Senate. Is that correct? Correct. So how long does this process generally take? I mean, the other presidents, how long did it play out for? It will take months. It, it'll be, from the sources that I spoke to, it'll be around the end of fall when um, the House will maybe draft some articles of impeachment. But if there were to be a trial, that could last way past the 2020 election. Oh, so there's a chance that it, Trump could be voted out or voted back in and then impeached? Perhaps. Well, that just that's that adds another layer to it, I suppose. But did did any of your sources talk about the complicated nature of impeachment and whether they expect anything to happen out of this? The main thing that many of the political scientists that I interviewed for this story are expecting is for more information to come out during the um, impeachment inquiry and investigation. There's already been tons of drama, not even as part of the investigation when Donald Trump said to some reporters that he'd like China to investigate the Bidens, which is really what what spurred the whistleblower complaint in regards to Ukraine. So uh, there's already things starting to happen that is starting to affect public opinion, which is also going to affect impeachment and removal from office. Is there anything else that we should know for your story then? It's all going to be in the end about public opinion. There's already some changing viewpoints on the Republican side of the aisle, which is going to factor into whether impeachment gets as far as it is. 
You said it could take a while for any trial or anything to happen. So what are the odds that throughout this process, Trump gets either reelected or not reelected, and then there's new senators and new representatives in the House? Could they take back impeachment if the House becomes more Republican or if there's a switch from a Democratic House to a Republican House and then from a Republican Senate to a Democratic Senate? Does that factor in at all? It does, and it's a high probability um but from what we're seeing in the news so far is actually the more likely possibility is that Trump resigns because um, when the U.S. House starts subpoenaing the White House, things will start coming out that maybe presidents in the past, specifically Clinton and Nixon, don't want to come out. So it's very likely that he could resign. But again, it's like you said, it's also likely that there'll be some switches in both chambers of chambers of Congress that impact the uh, nature of the impeachment inquiry. Well, I guess we'll just have to sit and wait. But for more reporting, you can go to ColumbiaChronicle.com for our full impeachment guide. Alexandra, thanks for coming in. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Chronicle Headlines. You can check out all of these stories and more in our print edition available on campus on our website, ColumbiaChronicle.com, and our additional coverage on social media. We are at CC Chronicle on Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat, and The Chronicle on Facebook and YouTube. Chronicle Headlines is made possible with the collaboration of our staff of the Columbia Chronicle and WCRX-FM, Chicago's Underground under the leadership of the Communications Department of Columbia College Chicago, Suzanne McBride, Chair. Chronicle Headlines is produced and hosted by Blaze Mesa and Yasmin Shika. So that's what Columbia looks like! This is what Columbia looks like! Published since 1973. I'll give my life for this cause, and I will die for this cause. This is Chronicle Headlines.